The following is a message by Sean Taylor, a pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. Morning, guys. It's very good to see you um, for the past two weeks. I haven't been able to gather in person with my community. Um, and as you know, Joel mentioned a bit earlier, we really benefit from technology. And so I have been able to join in the service in terms of the live stream and, and hearing the preach word and being able to sing worship songs. But it's, it's just something that I want to remind us that nothing beats the face-to-face. -face. Um, it is our conviction here at Grace Family Church that there are certain activities that when we do it, as we agree with what God says in his word about not forsaking to gather, really believe that God blesses that. He blesses it in a particular way so again when we do the face-to-face -face interactions as we exercise care through asking people questions uh, speaking the truths of Jesus to people um, lifting up prayers as we hear people share some of their concerns you know our, our belief is that God blesses those times in a very particular way and he meets us with his grace and so this morning, as we continue a sermon series that we really did last year, where we referred to it as where we stand, you know, this gives us a chance to speak to some of the specific ways and the specific values that we share at Grace Family Church, but not just at Grace Family Church, the values shared among our family of churches, Sovereign Grace. Last week, Sheldon would have looked at our view on the Lord's Supper. And today, we're going to look at baptism. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, I encourage you, you can pick up one of the Bibles over there or use your digital Bible on your phone or on your tablet. But, and as I said, we're going to be looking at a range of different passages. But before we start, I wanted us to... Look at Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Uh, people call that the Great Commission. You'd see that titled in your Bible. And I want us to read that before we pray. And so that's Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Father, as we hear your word preached today would you indeed be with us this promise that you will be with us always to the end of the age may we 
Know your presence with us this morning as we sit under your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So some time ago, I remember watching a very fascinating documentary on tattoos. You know, it looked at a range of the things, including some of the historical practices surrounding tattoos, uh, which particular groups of people did it, and the reasons behind each design and artistic work. Uh, really largely in the West, though, if you see somebody with a tattoo, um, they're going to probably share with you a particular story about why they have it, uh, you know, some family situation, something they consider important to them, this narrative that they want to communicate to tell a particular journey that they've walked on. However, what I found interesting as I was just listening to this documentary is that how for certain cultures, the tattoo revealed a lot about their identity. Uh, it, it reveals certain things like, again, what particular grouping they were a part of. In many cases, it would communicate where they would rank in that community. And so some of you might even notice this a bit if you watch certain movies. For example, in Japanese culture, you see, tattoos were given to members of the Yakuza. And the Yakuza, this was a group are really a criminal organization. Um, and really, these tattoos served as a outward sign to the initiate. And really, if you were an informed person, it would reveal a lot of the inner workings of the status and the position of the person wearing that permanent piece of body art. And really, these outward signs told a lot of detailed stories for some people it would tell maybe the amount of people that they have killed it may have it might tell what their role in the, the particular criminal organization was it really communicated really their mission in a lot of places and so when an outsider would look on that you know so you see it in the movies you see the guy take off his shirt and all of a sudden, you might say fair, where, oh, 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 I didn't know that you were this guy. Again, it communicated things to people. And then even for the person themselves, when they would look in the mirror, it would serve to remind them about the mission they themselves would have committed to be a part of. You see, interestingly, when you read the storyline of the Bible, it's very difficult to miss another mission at play as well. You see, from Genesis all the way to Revelations, God has been actively on a mission to call and pursue and to redeem a particular set of people. And when you look in the Old Testament, we largely see God's interaction with uh, the Israelites in a lot of ways, and God would mark these people for himself through very unique ways. Uh, through his unique law, uh, in, a, in a lot of ways, you could tell who an Israelite was by lifting up, an Israelite man especially, lifting up his gown and checking that, oh yeah man, I'm circumcised. That was one of the marks, um, but there are many other marks, again, that would be a witness to the outsiders, uh, instructions that God would give to his people 
to really say, all right, these guys are set apart for God. These parts, these guys are Israelites. And again, their obedience to God's law in light of the nations, it, it didn't represent God's way of ignoring the nations, but really this is how God would operate where he identifies with a particular set of people to accomplish his redemptive work in them and thereafter impact the nations they were a part of. And then when you look in the New Testament, that type of mission continues where through the people we call the church, and Joel would have looked at this idea of the church two weeks ago, where people who are from the past, from present and future, God is gathering a particular set of people and marking them for his glory from every nation, from every tribe, from every language. You see this phrase, I will be their God, they will be my people. This is a beautiful reality of our Christian faith. And we serve a God who isn't standoffish. His desire is to relate intimately with all those he is calling to himself, all those he has marked for his mission. And so a question is, you know, how are such people identified? How are they marked? Well, today we're going to learn of one of the first steps, a first marker of sorts of those who are called believers, those who have identified with God, those who have identified with his mission, and those who have identified with his people. And as we go through a, a, a varied set of passages today, I believe we're going to see this idea how baptism is that mark and how baptism is a gospel reminder to Christ's gathered people meant to establish their identity and to renew their faith. Again, that baptism is this gospel reminder to Christ's gathered people meant to establish their identity and to renew their faith. And you see, guys, the Bible is filled with a number of imperatives, a number of commands, which when we obey them, it serves to mark us as believers. However, all of these instructions, baptism really serves as one of those first outward marks for a very long journey of what it would look like for a believer and his obedience to God. And so as we look at this practice of baptism, we're going to look at it in three ways. We're going to look at the meaning, and then we're going to look at the mode, and then we're going to look at the merit. And so that's the meaning, the mode, and the merit, so you can make your notes. You see, we live in a time where it's very easy to misunderstand this practice of baptism. And again, I would confess that if you take it in the wrong context, this practice can almost be communicated as a sort of work where people use it as a means of salvation. Uh, but we also need to avoid this kind of familiarity with it where we run the risk of making this practice be something like uh, optional or worse, this type of ritualistic a dead act, void of passion and void of meaning. Because one of the things I want us to realize that every instruction from the Lord 
is provided to us for a benefit. It benefits us as individuals, but it also benefits us as a community. And so we will do very well to understand what this practice is, and we will do very well to give attention to what the scripture reveals about it. And so let us look first at the meaning, the meaning of baptism. You see, two weeks ago, as I said, Joel looked on the idea of the church, the church of Christ. And one of the things he reminded us from scripture is how it referred to us as this gathered people, gathered. And he noted that while this phrase, the church at the time, was not necessarily a unique name, it could represent any type of gathering. And so, you know, a mob could be out there and they refer to him as this gathering. Um, but for the Christian faith and the Christian people, this would eventually be attached to them because of the sort of common goals and very unique identifiers that they had. And so these gathered people, they were marked by how they were called out by Jesus himself. And so interestingly, the passage that we started with in Matthew, and we read this morning that is referred to this great commission, it really does a very good job at summing up some key marks of this community. And so if you look back at that Matthew passage, it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so what does that remind us? It reminds us that we are people called by and to the Lord Christ himself. We are called out of darkness into our king's marvelous light. This call is not merely an individualistic call, but it's a corporate one. It says, and Jesus came and said to them. And so that them applies to those apostles and those disciples at the time, but it also calls all of us even today. And what was the instruction that he gave to them? It says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so again, this is our call and our purpose to what? Make disciples. And what do you realize from this passage? What's, what's the first type of instruction that these disciples themselves who are making disciples are to do? You see this idea of first baptizing them. Baptizing them. Baptizing and teaching them all that Jesus commanded. So what we realize when we look at the, this, before we look at the meaning of baptism, we realize that this instruction to baptize is really one of the first steps in this sort of gospel-spreading agenda. It should also be mentioned that in Scripture, baptism wasn't really an unfamiliar practice for the original readers. And so the original word, baptizo, means to plunge or to dip or to immerse. And so depending on who was doing it, baptism represented different things. And so, if you remember when John the Baptist was at the River Jordan, people weren't walking past and saying, whoa, what's that weird thing that he's doing? Dipping people in the water and coming out. It wasn't strange to them. Uh, maybe if the Jews themselves, they would have practiced 
certain things like that ritualistic washing and baptisms of sorts. But what was most intriguing to them was the reason. You know, and so when they saw John the Baptist baptizing, they were asking, all right, why exactly are you doing this? And if you look in Matthew 3, 11, John the Baptist says that the reason he's baptizing is to symbolize repentance and the cleansing of sin. And so even there we get an idea of first the meaning of baptism. John, John the Baptist, you know, his baptism, that was what was at stake, you know, repentance, the cleansing of sin. And even following Jesus' death and resurrection, we kind of see aspects of this meaning continuing. You see, noteworthy when you look in Acts and while Paul is on the road to Damascus and he meets miraculously with Jesus and he is blind and then God says to Ananias, Yo, go, go for Paul, go check him. And after meeting with Paul, Paul looks and Ananias looks on Paul and says to him in Acts 22, 16, And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. And so, certainly, baptism is meant to be a sign of how through faith Christ washes all our sins away, our past, our present, and our future sins. He does this because of what he has done on the cross. But, but interestingly, when you read more into the New Testament, you see the authors bringing up an even more amazing truth or fleshing out this truth even more. Uh, we don't, for the sake of time, we can't focus on all of them, but I want us to look at Romans 6, verse 3 to 5. In Romans 6, verse 3 to 5, it says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like his we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. You see, again, in this passage, Paul lets us know that the baptism that Jesus calls us to partake in is meant, sure, to talk about the washing of sins, but it's meant to identify us with Jesus. It's meant to identify us with Jesus in his death as the person is submerged underwater like Jesus died our baptism pictures all of the ways that we too are dying to our old ways as we are called to put off the ways of the flesh and then as the individual rises out of the water it serves as a sign of how just as Jesus is resurrected and just as he's seated at the father's side we now are raised into a new life. Again, this is what baptism wants to picture. With every dip of a believer in baptism, it's a picture of the death of Christ on our behalf. The punishment and the power of sin that sought to kill you and I was placed beneath the foot of our Savior. Yet, 
hold your breath no longer because through faith, new breath and new life is given to you. And as surely as Christ is risen, on that final day, you are going to rise again and you would belong with him. This is the beautiful picture that baptism seeks to show us. And so in our statement of faith, we phrase it like this. It says, water baptism is a visual demonstration of a person's union with Christ in the likeness of his death and resurrection. It signifies that his former way of life has been put to death and vividly depicts a person's release from the mastery of sin. You know, again, I would say, think of it like when we have in our culture of a wedding and a ring and what that represents. Listen, a man can talk about his love for his lady, but as one of the modern-day authors puts it, if you like it, then you should have put a ring on it. You see, that ring and that ceremony, in a lot of ways, it communicates to people and it communicates to a world that, listen, that boy is mine. That girl is mine. You know, forgive the R&B references, but this is really what baptism really tries to illustrate. This public declaration to everybody that, yeah, man, I'm, Jesus is mine. I belong to him, and I belong to his people. And so Bobby Jameson puts it like this. In baptism, you publicly commit to Christ and his people. Baptism is where faith goes public. It's how a new believer shows up on the world and the church's radar as a believer. In other words, baptism marks off a believer from the world. In baptism, the church says to the world, this one belongs to Jesus. And so now that we've established the meaning behind Christian baptism, let's look at the second point, the mode. The mode. Now, it's very important as we start this section that I say that throughout history of the church, there has been much debate over the mode of baptism. And so as it relates to the meaning that we addressed before, as it relates to the purpose that baptism doesn't bring about salvation and that it is supposed to represent your union with Christ, among believers there are broad agreement regarding that fact and the meaning. But as it relates to this idea of the mode, not so much. And so I need to start in that way. Again, baptism is this outward symbol of what has already happened to those in their hearts, to those spiritually through faith. But again, as you go through the biblical data, you're going to really raise a lot of questions about how exactly baptism should be done. And so I'm going to try my best to address the mode by answering the how, the when, and the who of baptism. And so let's take the how. You see, there are discussions about whether you should baptize via sprinkling, via pouring, or via submerging. And honestly, again, you know, the very few, few months at least that I took in a Greek class, I recognized that, hmm, 
I see why they're arguing like this. Because a lot of it comes down to debate about the original language and how it's used. You know, and so as we went through Mark, though, one of the things that our conviction is here at Grace Family Church regarding the how, when we see examples of, for example, John and at the Jordan River, Jesus came out of the water. Or when the evangelist Philip preached the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch, and on the way the eunuch says, see, here is water, what is to prevent me from being baptized. You know, these give a, an example that in a lot of ways, baptism seeks to represent this burial and resurrection. And so it kind of lends to itself that the mode looks like immersion. And so this is the conviction that we share at Grace Family Church, that baptism happens by immersion. When someone is dipped, under the water, representing burial, and come out and representing resurrection. Now, again, I want you to hear that and say, this is our conviction that we hold not like this, but like this. And Because when you hold convictions like this, we tend to fight unnecessarily about it. We don't believe that the mode is one of those fights that you need to get into. And then now coming from the Great Commission passage, Matthew 28, 19 gives another how in terms of what should be said. And so we believe that it is by the authority of Jesus Christ that we baptize people. And we do so in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Again, in our Jamaican culture, you will hear much arguments about the how. No, you need to say, in the name of Jesus Christ. You're not to say the other ones. And again, different passages that seem to say a varied amount of things. Our conviction is that it is by the authority of Jesus Christ that we baptize. And we do it in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And again, that shouldn't be a surprise that Jesus would give this threefold formula because if baptism means to reflect and picture the key aspects of the gospel, you know, after all, all three persons of the Godhead have a very unique role to play in it. And so it is not a surprise to us. But let's answer another question. The when. When should someone be baptized? You see, the pattern in scripture for when someone should be baptized seems to be as soon as they believe. And so as early as the formation of the church has been, we've seen the response that people have had after hearing and believing the gospel message. We have not really seen that the response is raising hands. It's not walking an aisle. It's not signing a card. What we have seen is that the response to the gospel is to be baptized. Yeah? And so in Acts 2, we see when Peter is preaching this first message after being filled with the Spirit and he preaches and they are filled with conviction and the men there say, listen, in light of all of what you're saying, what we must do? And in Acts 2.38, Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
and verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's a lot of baptisms. <laughs> but again, what you see in, in terms of the when, it is when you accept the good news preach, that's when we see baptism happening. And that pattern is going to continue for the rest of the book. When you look in Acts, you see Philip preaching to Simon the magician, and he sees, he repents, he gets baptized. We heard that with the, youth, the, the Ethiopian eunuch. And we saw that even with Cornelius, the Gentile. He is at home, he's a Gentile, and Peter goes, preaches the gospel to him, and it says he and his household believed, and what did they all do? They first, well, they all got filled with the Spirit. And then when they got filled with the Spirit, Peter said, hm, why we must hinder them to be baptized? So what did they do? They baptized Cornelius and his household. And so that is what we see. So these verses, if you notice, again, might address another question that we're going to go to about the who. See, what is common so far in these verses is that those who are baptized and those are those who believe the gospel. And so those who have trusted and put their faith in Christ, as Galatians 3.27 says, those are the people we are to baptize. And so as far as the when, when is the when? Tell me when the when. When do you baptize? As soon as you believe. And now the who really is those who believe, right? And so, again, in our statement of faith, this is how we, we phrase it. Water baptism is intended only for the individual who has received the saving benefits of Christ's atoning work and has become his disciple. Therefore, in obedience to Christ's command and as a testimony to God, the church, oneself, and the world, a believer should be immersed in water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that is our conviction. And again, in Jamaica especially, I have noticed something very interesting. Uh, you go to somebody and you say, my brother, you're, you're, you're a Christian, you're a believer. Yeah, mom, we believe in Jesus, you know, but, but we're not baptized yet. And so in a lot of ways, in our culture, baptism is seen as a sort of next step of the Christian walk. Uh, but as we've been seeing here, it truly, if you've truly trusted in Christ, you should want to be baptized as soon as possible. And it is really a first step. This is a pattern of the New Testament. Um, you know, but again, I, it, it's important to mention when we're talking about the mode, please. Let's discuss it like this, because when you look in church history, and if you look in probably many of the churches you and I have been a part of, in an attempt to preserve the holiness of the church, we've had a lot of practices of delaying baptism, right? And so typically, if you give your life to the Lord, you will go to a baptism class. And a lot of that is so that they can teach you core aspects of the gospel and, and let you understand what you're doing. And especially in the history of the church, this would have been a very important thing because to be baptized was one of the ways you legally become a Christian. 
And so in a time when Christianity was the legal religion and, you know, there were certain benefits to become a Christian, what you would find is that there would be some people who would just get baptized because they want citizenship. Yeah? And so what they would have done is that they say, hmm, realize that before we've been, we're not able to see the fruit of some of these guys. Let's delay it a bit. Um, let's allow them to, to hear more of the gospel and let's see if we can see the person showing fruit in keeping repentance. And so, again, I put that out there for you to say that there is some reason why some people delay it. Now, from there, here's a question that, you know, Joel would have raised in our Give and Grief. He mentioned this idea about, what about small children? What about small children? At what age should we baptize children? You know, I myself grew up in an Anglican church, and so I was christened, I was baptized. Um, in many ways, again, people do this because they're trying to harmonize what they understand about the role of children in the family of God. And so, you know, in a lot of ways, some people say, all right, because just like the children of God were circumcised in the Old Testament as a sign of the covenant, they understand that the New Testament sign is baptism. Or they might say, listen, Cornelius and the entire household was baptized. And one would probably purport that in a household, you're going to have picnic, right? And so, that's why some people would say, yeah man, you can baptize children. Again, I mentioned at the beginning, we have brothers and sisters who hold this view based on their understanding of scripture. I will tell you, even in our family of churches, there are some people who are members, some people there who, that is their conviction. And again, we embrace them as family and embrace them as gospel partners even though we might disagree with this particular aspect and so at grace family church we do not practice baptizing children we believe in blessing and praying for children just as jesus did we believe that children benefit from living and being a part of a gospel community being a part of a believing household you see, because faith is not inherited through bloodlines, nor it can be willed or loaned to a child. However, in a sense, we do believe that children who partake in a household that is believing will benefit from the blessings of God. And so that is our conviction. So, again, don't be surprised then that under such a context, children can genuinely profess faith in the context of a believing household. Again, even without growing up in a Christian home, once you sit under God's word, a child can respond to the gospel. And so that's why children even know when we are here, we say at Grace Family Church, we want children here. Because we believe children, you can respond to God's word. You can hear God's word preached, Elijah. And you can respond to it and believe. That is our conviction. Anyone who has an ear and can hear can be captured by the Spirit of God and be saved. And that may very well be the testimony of many of you. You know, I know Joel will say, boy, he felt he heard God call him at how old? 
at six, at six years old. So again, as we grapple with this specific area of baptism, Joel did mention that we have some handouts that we would love to give to you. Time does not permit us to flesh that out, but I encourage you to read that, parents. I encourage you to read some of those things with your children. If your child has said, hey, I want to identify with Christ, I want to identify with his people, we believe that that handout would be very helpful for you. And as you do that, definitely come and speak to us so that we can facilitate this. But I do want to read something from one of our pastors in our family of churches as we were in, interacting with him a bit about consideration about when we should think about baptism for children. And so this is from Josh Blunt. Is that how you pronounce his name? Yeah? Anyway, um, this is what he says. It seems that we're always making this, the decision of whether to baptize someone in this age category in light of two competing claims. One, the desire to ensure genuine regeneration, which we know from scripture and experience is sometimes not immediately evident at a young age. And two, the desire not to withhold baptism from a truly regenerate child. Those two desires are rooted in two biblical convictions, that one, God can save every or any young child. And two, elders must do due diligence to make sure that we're not merely baptizing good parenting in place of the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. You see, these are the things that we're trying to hold with tension. Because again, we recognize that as you who are good parents, you're training your child in the way they should go, they sometimes show something that looks like fruit. And again, we want you to take responsibility in engaging your child, um, asking certain questions so that they can determine, okay, are they ready to be baptized? And so to cap this off, the who question, baptism is done to those who have come to an understanding of faith in Jesus Christ and are at a stage, not a particular age, where they are willing to identify with Christ and his people. And so we're going to close off this section with the merit. And this is a shorter section. Again, after we've established that baptism is this outward and visible sign of the work that God is doing in our hearts, and we've established who and the mode that baptism should happen, we want to look at this idea of the merit. You see, yes, God has commanded us to baptize people but everything God commands comes with a blessing and so it is also a gift of grace to us and so as we partake in this sacrament of baptism we recognize that this is a means of grace and what do I mean by a means of grace this means that there are things in the Christian faith that we do to position ourselves to receive grace and again, notice, I didn't say things that we do to earn grace. Christ and his work has earned us grace before God. However, there are things that God calls us to do as a church that if we partake in it, he says that it positions us to benefit from his grace. And so that's why Luke 11:28 is going to say, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. 
And so when we read and sit under God's word preach, when we pray or we fellowship with one another as God instructs us to do, it, we can hold on to the promise that we are going to position ourselves to be blessed by the Lord. And the same applies to this instruction of baptism. And so as a new believer publicly confesses Christ as his Savior and then partakes in this sign which shows his participation with Christ in his death and resurrection, this in of itself can do much to bring joy. This in of itself can bring blessing to the believer. Again, we have faith that the Holy Spirit is at work in the midst of every baptism that happens when a man or woman has genuine faith. We believe that in this powerful illustration that God would give them the assurance of what baptism says it means. That they have union with Christ. And so our belief is that when someone is being baptized, that they will feel that experientially. This is what we hope. It is also a blessing for those who watch a baptism. I don't know about you, but one of the things I've always found a blessing is when I attend someone's wedding. Again, attending someone's wedding, I get to look at the fresh young faces as they look upon each other with love and great commitment. And me in my how much years realizing, boy, I look upon love, young love. Hmm? But we get to watch the commitment they make. Those vows that you and I said many years ago and probably don't even remember, we get to hear them again. We get to hear. And, you know, I'd look at my wife and say, wow, I really made that promise to you? Yeah. And I'm reminded of the ways that I fall short of the very commitments that I've made. Yet, as I watch the happy couple declaring their love for each other before God and others, I feel their joy and their eagerness. And it, you, you can't but help be affected by it. You see, when we celebrate other people saying, I believe in Jesus and I belong to his community, it does the very same thing to us. You see, we remember our baptism. We remember again the commitment we made from the very beginning. We remember our first love. And though no doubt time has caused us to count the cost, and no doubt time has caused us to say, boy, Christianity not easy, you know. It does serve to re-energize us. It serves to encourage us. Again, it is not just an individual blessing, but a corporate one. And so one of the things we as leaders have been praying is that we will experience the joy of baptizing people in this fellowship. You know, as we obey Jesus in making disciples, as we live and speak the truth of the gospel around our children, our family members, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, we pray that they will ask, what must we do? And, you know, we look forward to the time that we can say, repent and be baptized. This is the first step of a lifetime of obedient acts that you are going to have to make before the Lord. And so baptism, it is this gospel reminder to Christ's gathered people meant to establish their identity and renew their faith. 
And so whether you are an observer or a partaker in a baptism, would you have faith to see the beautiful things? As the water covers you, would you see how Jesus has washed away your sins? See how he has put to death the power of sin over your life. May you coming out of the waters be re refreshed and be reminded about the experience of the power of Christ's resurrection. And may it fuel your faith and serve you to prepare for the mission he's called you to. Folks, we are marked by our Lord. And it identifies us with him and with others. And may we be expectant as we partake in the special instruction he has given us with baptism. Let's pray. You have just listened to a message by Sean Taylor, a pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.